The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am your host, Dan Bespris, once again, trying everything in my bag of tricks to get a podcast to you guys in the mornings, at least Pacific time, as opposed to the late afternoon and or early evening time. It's Tuesday. There's less news to cover today from the NBA standpoint, although there was one little thing that kind of slipped through. And then we're going to move back into our, I don't know if you can still call them post-mortems, as it seems like the NBA is inching towards wanting to play again here in the uh, not-too-distant future. But we're going to keep calling them postmortems because, damn it, it's easier. I am at Dan Bespris on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. This is, I know, a weird time because, well, the sports world is still more or less shut down. Uh, but I got a feeling that we're not long from seeing this big surge of sports-related activity, and then you probably get a lot of folks that start to pay attention to sports again, and hopefully you guys will find this podcast and uh, we can get this bad boy fired back up to full speed once again. Today's team that we're going to be cover is the covering, excuse me, is the Chicago Bulls. That should be a fun one. They're just, <laughs> I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but at the same time, I do think that there's an interesting future for this team because we're all about locating value, and I do believe that there will be some value plays on this team next year. But before we get to that, I wanted to quickly make mention of the one little itty-bitty piece of NBA news that dropped this morning. And it wasn't, it wasn't a big one, but it came via quote. And the quote was from uh, David Griffin, the general manager of the New Orleans Pelicans, who mentioned that he had been told by the commissioner, Adam Silver, that it, Silver is expecting to make an announcement on the league's direction in the next two weeks, meaning between June 1st and June 15th, the league is expecting to find out what's happening next. We'll just go ahead and assume that's kind of what we were operating on anyway, since last week Adam Silver said he expected to make a decision between two and four weeks, and that would have put it basically between the start of June and the middle of the month. So no real changes there from an NBA news perspective, just a more specific timeline the front end being, I've mentioned this before, my 37th birthday. I'd love to get an announcement that the league is coming back for my birthday. That's all I want this year. That's all I want. News that sports is coming back. Is that so much to ask? I don't think so. So that's your little piece of NBA news today, and it doesn't really change the trajectory of whether things are opening or not. I don't think it changes even whether or not we think it's happening or not. Uh, but what it does do is it gives the... the uh, and with all the facilities being open as well, you, you've got the players just getting some kind of positive feelings at the very least. You know, they're, they're staying loose, they're staying connected, and hopefully that leads to additional steps. But but we re truly don't know if this means anything at all. And in terms of the David Griffin announcement, if you want to call it that, it really just sort of locked into place the timeline that we had guessed already. Because two to four weeks from what we heard last week, would have basically been like the last work day in May, 
through like June 12th. And so David Griffin just pushed it back like basically one business day. That's it. Um, I think we can probably just leap straight ahead into Chicago Bulls breakdown. I do want to make mention once again that that folks do continue to reach out uh, as per the, the tweets that I've put out and, and some of the notes here on this podcast. When I say Hoopball is still looking for people, maybe I should be a little bit more clear. So uh, if, if you're not at all interested in coming to be a part of what we got going on in Hoopball here, you can fast forward 90 seconds. But just for everybody that's even considered it, we are going to shoot out of this thing like a rocket ship. I want you guys to realize that we are not shutting down. We are opening up. We need salespeople. We need podcasters. We need writers. All of these things are on the table. Many of them are more of the what you'd call the contributor roles. Um, but certainly on the sales side, there is an opportunity to make some coin as well. If you're strong on the phones, you've got midday hours. When I say midday hours, I, of course, mean Pacific Time business hours uh, free. Then hit me up at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, or email teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. I hope that addresses most of the questions that have been coming up on that front. As far as the Chicago Bulls go, this was, by all accounts, another disappointing season. Yes, another disappointing season. And to me, some of this, the Michael Jordan documentary being out, I thought may have kind of pushed things forward a little bit in terms of getting the Bulls to make some changes internally. And I don't know if there's any correlation there, but it feels like, it almost feels like the Bulls knew this was about to come out and remind everyone of how good things were. And so finally, ownership was like, okay, yeah, we can't, like, we can't operate the way we've been operating. And so they got rid of the Gar in Gar Pax, and Pax is still around because he's got a little bit more Bulls legend status from, well, if you guys watch the documentary, you're perfectly aware of why. But to change the culture in Chicago, all these new bodies and faces, and then we've heard that um, Jim Boylan is sort of in the hot seat right now. He should have been on the hot seat so long ago. The, the fact that this team was 22-43 and 43 this year is, is freaking horrible. By the way, um, advanced metrics show the Bulls as being better than both the Hornets and the Wizards. If you looked at the some of the numbers in the Eastern Conference, that still puts them outside the playoff picture. But that also, again, describes kind of, I mean, that they should have been winning more games than they did. And I don't know if that falls on coaching. By the way, it does. Or possibly leadership on the floor. It also does fall on that. But whatever weird uh, amalgam of reasons you want to put together, this season should have been better for Chicago. There are very few excuses as to why it went as poorly as it did. And you could say, well, Wendell Carter Jr. missed a bunch of time. He did. And Larry Markinen missed some time. He did. And Chris Dunn ended up blowing out his knee and missing the last some 15 games of the season. He did. Uh, and young man Daniel Gafford missed a bunch of time, and Denzel Valentine missed a bunch of time, and Luke Cornett missed a bunch of time. But a lot of those are kind of a who cares. Everybody has players that miss time. The big one that you can probably pin some of the issues on is Otto Porter, because he was supposed to be, and I, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also not really, 
Born in 1993, that makes Otto Porter kind of a veteran on this team. In fact, he was born almost exactly 10 years after me. So he has a birthday coming up here in the not-too-distant future. Otto was supposed to be a little bit of a glue, making a ton of money. He has a giant player option for next year, so he's probably going to be back, and he just was never healthy this year. There was hope that as he worked his way back from his stuff, maybe, just maybe, he could provide a little boost to this team as they worked their way down the stretch. I don't think it was going to be enough to put them in the playoff picture, but he had played five games since coming back from his injury that knocked him out for all of November, December, January, and February, and he was starting to look pretty good. In fact, his last two games, his minutes had ramped up into the mid-20s, He had 23 points and 15 points in those last two games, combined seven rebounds, four assists, split between the two, and then four steals and two steals, while, and this is the big thing for him, shooting over 50% in both of those games. We've talked about this a million times. Some of the key and easy ways to tell whether or not a player is healthy is to look at their defensive rate and their field goal percent. And for Otto Porter, he had his worst field goal percent of any season of his career that he's been playing even medium-level minutes. He had his lowest minute total of any season of his career. And, you know, a lot of that is because he was coming back from injury, and so four of his games he was on a strict minutes cap. So we won't read too much into that one. But the 44% from the field, extraordinarily low. 1.1 steals, very low, although trending up... That's a big deal, and also limited sample size, so the steal rate wasn't that bad this year, but just the minutes on the floor. If he's out there for his more traditional 30 minutes a game, and you extrapolate what we were looking at for uh, for what he was able to do in 23 and a half minutes a game this year, that doesn't put him all that far away from where we kind of wanted him to be. He would have been in the neighborhood of 15 or 16 points per game, in the neighborhood of about four and a half rebounds per game, which I think would have trended up as he got healthy. Steals would have probably been in the 1.4 range per game, which is not that far off what you'd expect. In fact, a little bit ahead of his uh, career per 36s, or, or just a career mark, pretty close actually to his career per 36s. Blocks, believe it or not, were higher than usual this year at 0.4 in only 23 minutes. And then again, the field goal percent being low. So, you know, by all accounts, if you looked at his game log this year, it looked terrible. He got off to a bad start. Ball wasn't going in the hoop. He was shooting the ball poorly. In fact, right before he kind of got hurt slash shut down on November 6th, he had put together two of his three better games of the season. He had that 22-6-4 game with a steal. Uh, He had an 18-point game against the Lakers. He was starting to make some buckets. And in fact, even in the game where he got hurt for four months, he was five for six from the floor. He had 13-4-2 with two steals and a block in one quarter against Atlanta before the injury set in. And so when we talk about the Bulls, and by the way, his player option for next year is at $28.5 million. There's, There's almost no way he declines that given the fact the league is about to lose a ton of money and players that are going to be trying to make money are going to want whatever is guaranteed so Otto is going to be back uh 
Thad Young, Tomas Sadoransky, these guys signed contracts in the offseason. Those guys will be back. Kobe White, the young fella, he'll be back. Wendell Carter Jr. will be back. Larry Markin, it'll be back. Zach Levine, all of these guys are back. I think the only question mark is whether or not the Bulls extend a qualifying offer to Chris Dunn for $7 million. I would assume that they do. He was playing relatively well when he went down, although there's the injury stuff, and so maybe they just kind of cut their losses there. That, to me, is the one question mark among the guys on this team that were playing what I would call meaningful minutes. You can get down into the the Chandler Hutchison range, got you know, guys playing 16, 17 minutes a game. But you know, for the most part, you're talking about that top eight. By the way, that creates problems of its own, but the top eight on this team in minutes per game were all over 23. And the lowest was Otto Porter, and his certainly would have been higher without the minutes cap and the injury. So you're talking about eight guys seeing healthy minutes on this Bulls team. That might also be a thing that cleans itself up a little bit next year. Let's go through these players one by one. We already talked about Otto Porter, and what I'll say about Otto is I think there's a reasonable chance that he's a huge value next year. I don't have a clue where he gets drafted, but I've got to believe that between the depressed statistics at 23 and a half minutes per game, albeit with a decent per 36 built into that, but folks aren't going to read that far enough to get to that point, and the giant four-month injury that had this season finished, or maybe it still will, is going to limit Otto to about 14 to 25, probably-ish games. There's almost no way he continues to get drafted, even as high as he was this year. And I'll tell you what, if that dude stays healthy this year, I have reason to believe he would have been a value this season. Yeah, I know. I I realize that you guys are going to call me uh, bananas, but I still like Otto Porter. I still like him, even despite this horrendous year. One of the issues with Otto is that even if he comes back healthy next year, you're probably not expecting more than about 65 to 70 games. He has had hip issues throughout his young NBA career. He had a stretch of four seasons in a row, very early, his second through his fifth year in the league. Those were all with Washington, where he played 74 to 80 games each season uh, last year, he played 56 between two teams, and then this year, only 14, and again, maxing out at about 28, 29. So you're talking about two seasons in a row now where injuries have kind of beset him. That leads me to believe that Otto is going to get drafted in that, we talked about it on yesterday's show, not the upside guys, but the second tier of falling dudes, meaning guys that you can probably get in hyper-competitive leagues, probably in the... 70s and guys in the less competitive leagues you probably get in the 80s or man could he even fall to the 90s it's possible anyway we'll we'll deal with this we'll check out ADPs as we get closer but I have I have high hopes especially in games cap roto format where I get it in weekly leagues in head-to-head unlimited games leagues he's a little bit harder pill to swallow uh but with a games cap even if you lose 15 20 games which is I think the expectation you can round those out with something else. And if you can get Otto at 80 next year, he could very easily be a top 40 guy. I mean, let's not forget what he did after moving to Chicago last season. He was a focal point. 
played 15 games with the Bulls last year and averaged almost 18, 5.5, 1.8 combined defensive stats, 2.5 three-pointers, 48% from the field, 91% at the free-throw line. That, that I mean, the free-throw number was high for him, but... There's, there's a very real chance that he comes back next year and averages 16, 5, and 2 with 1.3 steals, half a block, and two three-pointers a game. I mean, that's inside the top 50, and you better believe he's getting drafted way outside that 50 range. Some of the other interesting names on this team, and I want to shoot through some of the ones that are less interesting, and unfortunately, one of them is my old buddy Thaddeus Young, who even last offseason... I had to take him off of my Dan Vespers old man squad because there just simply wasn't any room for him to operate in Chicago. I'd say I don't fully understand why he's on Chicago's roster, but presumably they offered him the most money. A three-year deal is hard to come by. He's got two more seasons with Chicago, and I think they like his veteran leadership, but there's no way he's going to play enough minutes to have fantasy value. He is part of the Marvin Williams rule, meaning you need 30 minutes a game to get him inside the top 100, and he was at just 25 minutes a game this year. So I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 20% uh, boost from 25 minutes to 30. That's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. And you can't make up the sort of slow plotting stats that he provides with depressed minutes. So that's a no. Tomas Sadoransky had a very interesting season from a number of standpoints. He was up and down, finished at number 130 on the year after kind of a down stretch. And then Chris Dunn got hurt, and it seemed like he was primed to make a, a re-push back into fantasy relevance. And then he kind of got lapped by Kobe White. And if I lapped, I don't know that I mean necessarily that White was better than Sadoransky on the floor, but the Bulls just had sort of no reason to play the guy on the multi-year deal. That is, unfortunately, and I think this will surprise a lot of people, Sadoransky is going to be 29 in October of this year, and this was only his fourth season in the NBA. He was a much older rookie coming in with Washington, so they're going to play their young guy. I mean, there's almost a decade separating those two kids. I can call them both kids. I can do that. Um, maybe the balance shifts back a little bit next year, but I, I certainly wouldn't bank on it. And so for Sadoransky, 29 minutes a game this year, that should be enough for fantasy value, and he just... He deferred at every juncture. His field goal percent was way down with Chicago this year. I don't know if he was just taking shots he didn't like. Uh, the the shot breakdown wasn't that different. Uh, the fact that he got you five and a half assists, four rebounds, 10 points, 1.2 steals. I mean, that's stuff that's okay, but there's no upside there. And so when we talk about guys we're drafting, and this was the big lesson that kind of rolled into three different lessons. We need to be more aggressive. And Sadoransky's not an upside play. Yeah, he might. Let's say he does shoot the ball better. Let's say he puts up the exact same numbers next year, but shoots 48% instead of 43. Yeah, that moves him from top 130 to top 100. But that's still not really enough to take a shot outside of maybe the last round of your draft. And even that, I'm looking at him and going, you know, where are the minutes coming from? It's got to be... Some weird combination of Chris Dunn being gone long-term. Kobe White not seeing a boost in minutes? That doesn't seem feasible. And none of these other guys stepping up to grab a couple of minutes? I just I don't see how it works. And he's a guy I don't think I'd draft inside the top 150 next season. 
the uh, I, I guess we should make mention briefly of Chris Dunn. In his short NBA career for Dunn, we've seen a weird history of knee sprains, and so presumably anything they do with him will be careful. And it's also why I wonder, you know, do they extend the qualifying offer? Generally, you kind of might as well because they're usually relatively affordable, and if someone else offers him a big deal, you can either match or let him go. It just gives you a little bit more wiggle room as an organization. The only problem is what if nobody extends him an offer, then you end up getting stuck with a player maybe you didn't want all that badly, but for $7 million, and I think that's roughly what Dunn's qualifying offer is, my guess is they'll probably bring him back. He showed himself to be excellent on the defensive side, averaged two steals a game. That was among the league leaders in the NBA this year. He was actually second behind Ben Simmons. That's hard to come by, and he did it in just 25 minutes a night. So that was actually a number that was trending in the right way as he was taking minutes away from Sadoransky and the like. So, you know, it still feels like there's going to be a pretty good logjam in the Bulls' backcourt. We'll wait and see. You know, they're going to have to make a decision on him prior to when we have, whatever, we have a fantasy draft for next season. And I'd certainly be more inclined to take Chris Dunn late than Sadoransky late. To me, there's at least a little bit of upside there, particularly in the steals department. He was able to, to... post the second highest per game ranking on the Bulls this year in only 25 minutes a game because he was second in the NBA in steals. I mean, it's hard. I know that there's this this thing, and and uh, by the way, we're going to be doing a mailbag show tomorrow, and a lot of good questions have come in on Twitter so far. I'll try to do a reminder tweet at some point today. Uh, but if you have any mailbag questions, hit me up at Dan Vespers for tomorrow's show. One of the mailbag questions that came in, and I'm not going to answer it specifically here, but it talks a lot about the power of a specialist. Like, do you discount them in some degree because all of their value is coming from one statistical category? And my answer to that is a pretty hard no, because what a specialist does, especially one of Chris Dunn's uh, prestige in the steals department, is that he eliminates the need for one or maybe even two other guys on your team to be functional in that particular category. And the other reason that it's important is that if you have a specialist, and I think the the question was related to Brooke Lopez on Twitter, but I, I again, I don't, I'll get into that on tomorrow's mailbag episode for kind of player-specific stuff, but we did this exercise Uh, within the last week, actually, on this podcast, of just looking at what the top performers in each category were ranked in fantasy this year. And blocks in particular, Brooke Lopez is actually a wonderful example of this. He really didn't do almost anything else this season besides block two and a half shots a game at a glance. But if you look a little bit deeper, what he did do was block two and a half shots while also being generally a net neutral, tiny positive or tiny negative in most other statistical categories. So what you did there, and this is a this is sort of a fun math game to play, is if you look at the ranking of everybody, find the guy who's basically just a net nothing in every statistical category. Find the guy who's just sort of doesn't hurt you anywhere, doesn't really help you anywhere, really just mostly does nothing 
on the basketball court for 48 minutes a game. And when I say nothing, I don't mean zeros across the board. I mean he is just floating somewhere within arm's reach of league average in every statistical category. You know who that guy is? That guy is Will Barton this year. He was just barely above league average in scoring, rebounding, assists, steals, and turnovers. And he's just barely, oh, excuse me. He was actually right on the league average in scoring. And he was just barely below the league average in blocks, field goal percent, free throw percent, and actually scoring, he was ever so slightly below. Three-pointers, he was ever so slightly above. Do you know what that guy is ranked? That's league average in every statistical category? 67. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. Because when you look at fantasy numbers, the initial thought, the first thought that pops into your head is, I need guys that are going to power boost my team. I need someone that's going to be doing stuff. I need guys that are going to be accruing stats. League average is not going to get it done. I can't gain on people in league average. But here's the thing. That's what your top four or five guys are for. That's why getting 80 games out of your first and second round picks is so critically important is because once you get to the sixth and seventh round, you're just trying to maintain what you've already built. You're trying to maintain whatever averages your top guys set by having dudes that don't drag you down. Don't drag me down with guys that are below league average in a bunch of statistical categories. Terrence Ross is an interesting example of this. Well above league average in turnovers and three-pointers and well below league average in field goal percent, rebounding, and assists. So yeah, he's better than Will Barton in a handful of categories, but he's worse in a handful of others, and so he's number 105. So if you take a guy like Brooke Lopez, who was, I'll admit, uh, significantly below league average in, I guess you could say, field goal percent, but he just didn't take any shots, so it almost didn't matter, and... Uh, you know, a little bit above league average in turnovers. He was good there. Three-pointers, he was right around league average. He was a little bit below league average in scoring. Uh, pretty close to it in rebounding. A little bit below in uh, assists. That was where actually... Actually, assists was where he was farthest from league average. But who cares? He was a center. And you roll all of that stuff together, where he was a little bit below league average in about five categories. He was at league average in two. He was above it in one. And then elite in blocks, and that takes a guy who, again, if you take someone who's a little bit below league average in almost every statistical category, they're right around the edge of the top 100, and you turn one category into hyper-elite, you go from top 100 to top one to top 60. And that's why I don't discount specialists, because even without the specialist appeal, you're still talking about a guy that a lot of teams are playing. Like, a lot of teams ran Kevin Herter out there the entire season, and he was number 111. And that's basically where Brooke Lopez ends up. And you can't, like, don't turn blocks all the way off because you just have to bring them from where they were to league average. But if you could do that weird scheme, you'd find a guy that's around the edge of the top 100, top 120, something like that. I mean, there are guys... How many times did I have to tell people not to play certain dudes that were just sitting in that top 130 range. Like, freaking John Morant was 127 this year in 9-cat. 
That dude was on every roster and got played every single night out. Brooke Lopez, if you take his numbers and change him to league average blocks, he's John Morant's fantasy ranking. Make it from 2.5 blocks down to like 0.7. I know, it's mind-boggling, but not being terrible at anything has a really strong fantasy appeal. Now, why the hell were we talking about all this? Chris Dunn is the answer to that. I'll admit, his scoring was atrocious. He actually was well below league average in scoring and three-pointers. But again, we I mean, who cares about three-pointers? 0.6 per game, that's really rough. Uh, but you can knock that out with almost anybody. Still, we're not going to make excuses. League average in assists... At 3.4, uh, a little bit below in rebounding, but he was a point guard, so whatever. Below in blocks, but not by a ton. Field goal percent, a little bit on the low side. Free throw percent, right around league average, a little below. Turnovers, a little bit above. And then one hyper-elite category, and that got him to number 90. And the reason he wasn't at number 60, like Brook Lopez, was because his scoring in three-pointers were well below league average, as opposed to just slightly below league average. So no, I don't discount specialist guys. But the specialist guys we're talking about have to be in that top-most tier. I'm not talking about Thad Young's 1.4 steals a game or Matisse Thibel's 1.4 steals per game. I'm talking about Chris Dunn at 2 steals per game. DeJounte Murray at 1.7 steals per game. Hell, you could even throw Alfred Payton into the mix at 1.6 steals per game if he wasn't so truly horrendous at also scoring threes, field goal, and free throw percent. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, you guys know my feelings on that. But if you go through every category, and you just, at least the counting ones, and you look at the top guys in the league, it's hard to find dudes that are among that top tier, if you want to call them specialists, that aren't ranked pretty high. I don't know that there's anyone you could really call an assist specialist because pretty much all of those guys are good at at least one other thing. Uh, what about a rebounding specialist? Do they even exist? No, not really. Three-point specialist? Absolutely, they're out there. Duncan Robinson, three-point specialist. Davis Bertans, three-point specialist. Those guys almost didn't do anything else, and they were inside the top 90. Duncan Robinson did it while being well below league average in steals, blocks, and assists. Bertans actually was much closer to kind of the Brook Lopez model where he was just like a little bit below league average in four or five things and then well above it in threes. This is a very long-winded way of saying, yeah, I'd take a chance on Chris Dunn at the end of your fantasy draft because if he comes out and posts two steals a game again next year, then he, he pays for himself. What about some of the big names on the Bulls? This is running longer than I expected, but you know what? We got sidetracked. We're talking about stuff. Wendell Carter Jr. played 43 games this season and was a big disappointment. I didn't really see the massive appeal with him. I don't think we talked almost at all about him coming into this season on the podcast. I don't think I said anything either way, but certainly if I did, I would have said I'm not a massive believer in him. Uh, scoring didn't go up by the pace that you wanted to with the four extra minutes per game. You only scored one additional point. Uh, rebounding did, however, follow his additional minutes. Steals were up. Blocks were down. I don't know who the hell this guy is, but he actually could be a value next year. This is why I like talking about the Bulls, because to me, Otto Porter could be a value next year. Uh, Chris Dunn could be a very late draft pick next year. Wendell Carter Jr. could be a value next year. None of these guys lift up to their potential 
or where they were picked. And I don't think Chris Dunn was drafted almost any place. But like, if you look at Wendell Carter Jr., he was actually drafted uh, relatively high in a lot of places. He was drafted in the 60s in my most competitive league with, I think, people looking forward to a big leap from him in health and play. And yet, somehow, stuck in the mid-40s in games played, stuck at eight shots a game, and the only thing that went up, really, markedly, was rebounding. What if he plays 30 minutes a game next year? I think you see a step forward. I think you see the scoring come up. I think you see the rebounding at least stay put. I think you see the blocks come back a little bit. We've talked about this before. How do you know if someone's hurt? Their main defensive stats aren't there. Wendell Carter Jr. might get drafted in the 90s next year, and I'd be perfectly happy to take him in that spot. How quickly could this dude get from 116 to top 75? Wouldn't be hard. Make .8 blocks, 1.3, and you're basically there. Half a block a game, he'll move two to three rounds at that 116 range. And then if we can get him up to 13, 14 points, yeah, you got a top 80 guy. I'm into it. I think he'll be a value next year, and I feel the only issue again is can he stay on the floor? But at that point, you're taking what? Using an eighth-round pick on him? Talked about it on yesterday's podcast. By the second half of the eighth round, the free-for-all begins in competitive leagues. Less competitive ones, yeah, again, we're talking about maybe more like the 10th round. And finally, the two biggest names on the Bulls, Lowry Markinen and Zach Levine. We'll start with Zach Levine because he's probably the only guy in the Bulls that won't be a draft day value next year. He had a really nice season, uh, played in 60 games, ranked 41st in nine category leagues, 25 and a half points, three threes, five rebounds, four assists, one and a half steals, half a block, uh, 45% from the field on 20 shots was a little bit of a negative, but certainly not as much as it could have been. 80% foul shooting was a very small positive and then the turnovers were on the high side because, you know, there were stretches where he was not only asked to do everything, but kind of unwilling to let anyone else do anything at all. I don't know how his role gets any bigger next season. I think we have a pretty good idea of who he is, which is a 45% shooter from the field, about 80 to 82% at the free throw line, really firing three-pointers this year. He took eight per game. Kind of actually remarkable that he was able to shoot 45% from the field when eight of his 20 shots a night were from three-point land, but good numbers there. Steals were up. I don't know if that can hold season over season. And to me, it just feels like, you know, if Kobe White gets a bigger role next year, if any of these other guys, if Wendell Carter Jr. takes a few extra shots, if Lowry Markinen looks like he gives a crap a little bit more next year, all of that siphons from Levine's 20 shots a game. And as we learned from our very first lesson of the year, usage is value. Zach Levine's going to get drafted near 40 next year. I think he'll probably finish in the 50s, if I had to guess. He's still going to score a lot, but there's just almost no way it stays at that same very high clip. So I think he's a guy we probably won't end up with uh, on our fantasy teams all that often. Lowry Markinen, on the other hand, I think we probably end up with a fair number of Lowry's. He finished at 103, which by all accounts is kind of surprising. He was expected to do a lot more this year. Went in the fifth round in a lot of drafts. You know, last season he averaged 19-9 and once he got back on the floor. Uh, steals and blocks are never going to be all that high for him, but 2.33 pointers. 
Very good free throw shooting big man. Good free throw shooter for any position on the floor. Uh, anybody that's hitting you 19 and 9 with good free throw percent on medium volume and hitting threes and not doing a ton defensively, but also not completely dead in the water on that side, averaging about 1.3 combined defensive stats, which is, I'd call that low but not atrocious. This season, there was a hope that he'd be a top 50 guy. And he just never got himself involved. And then he had uh, the pelvic stress reaction, which I still almost can't say that without giggling a tiny bit. Next year, especially if they change up the coaching staff, he feels like a a colossal post-hype guy. Maybe I could have put him on my list of hype guys this year, Lowry Markinen. Drafted in the 40s and 50s. We'll call it the 50s to be safe. Ended up outside the top 100. That's a dude that's going to take a big draft day hit next season. And here's the, here's the beauty of it. Almost nothing other than his engagement level has to change. Because he still played 30 minutes a game when he was on the floor. The defensive stats were still there. The rebounding was not. And the field goal attempts were not. He just wasn't engaged. He didn't give a crap. Is the rebounding down because Wendell Carter Jr. was alongside of him for stretches? You could make that argument, I guess. But I don't think I'd pin it on that. Even if he's the power forward, do we think that hurts him a little? Yeah, probably, but he, was get, he wasn't getting that close to the bucket anyway. And so if you just put that in the rebounding, let's say his nine rebounds come down to seven and a half or eight. If the engagement level is back and he's back up to 19 points, 19 and seven and a half or 19 and eight versus 19 and nine. Yeah, we can handle that. Will he be a top 40, top 45 guy in that instance? No, maybe a little bit outside that mark. But I bet you this dude is drafted in the 75 range, and I would target him as well. I think we have a lot of Chicago Bulls next year. I think the roster uh, should have been better, just filled with disappointments. And so the coaching stuff, the culture stuff is big. The very last player to go over is Kobe White, who just went crazy the last... I think it was about two weeks, three weeks, something like that. He popped off for 30 points, three straight games. What was that? Right after the All-Star break, really. Uh, it took him a couple games, and then he got rolling. Well, I think the assumption here, and this is where a regime change is a little bit unnerving, I believe that even the new regime will be happy to play Kobe White. He was making shots, which is a big deal. Uh, He was turning the ball over a ton, but you have to assume that's going to happen with a rookie point guard. In fact, the last game they played, the day before the league shut down, he had 20 points, 5 assists, and 5 rebounds, but he had 9 turnovers in that game. Uh, The steals for Kobe were never really there. So we're trying to extrapolate a little bit here. Over those last couple of games... Let's say let's even look at the last 10 games for him where he was playing about 34 minutes a game. He averaged 25 points, 4 boards, 4 assists, but under a steal, no real blocks, then you don't expect much on the blocks front. 47% shooting from the field, 90% at the free throw line. So you kind of go back and you say, "Okay, well how much of this is sustainable?" For the season, Kobe's free throw percent was at 79. Over the last 20 games, 
he shot 86% at the free throw line. So that leads me to believe that that's an area where he's going to be just fine as he continues to see more opportunities there. Basically, as his free throw volume went up, as everything went up volume-wise for him, free throw percentage got better. So he got more comfortable with looking into an NBA crowd or an NBA rim, an NBA player standing alongside him at the free throw line. So that got better. Scoring obviously went up as playtime went up. Usage went was high pretty much no matter when he was on the floor. Uh, rebounding, not really going to be a thing for him. I, I think you in a perfect world, you hope for about three and a half maybe rebounds per game. Uh, assists probably somewhere in that four neck of the woods. And then .8 steals might very well be the upper water uh, mark on that one. Now, the one thing that I think is probably the, the driving factor in his fantasy value, because for the season, White played 26 minutes a game and was outside the top 200. But as we talked about over those last 25-ish, 20 to 25 games, he was number 147 in 29 minutes. And over the last 10 games, he was number 50 in 34 minutes a game. I don't really know how he gets all the way to 34 minutes a game if everybody on this team is healthy. I just, I don't see how the shots are there. Because look at, I mean, the last few games the Bulls played this year, Zach Levine was taking 24 shots a game and Kobe White was taking 19. They were opening it up a little bit, but that meant Laurie Markkinen got only 10. Uh, Otto Porter, in his return, he was taking about 10 shots a game. Somehow Denzel Valentine got in the mix for 12, but he missed a few. And Laurie Markkinen was just coming back from injury, so you probably can't put a whole lot on that. I just, I don't know how Zach Levine takes 20 plus shots a game and how Kobe White takes 18 or 19 shots a game. There are too many guys on this team that also need the basketball. That said, he is going to be a guy that went on the floor. He's going to just be going for it. So does he come off the bench and just shoot like a crazy person? Is there enough there? He needs a ton of volume to get to that high, high mark that he was putting up towards the end of the year. I mean, Look at look at the game by game breakdown we're talking about here. He took 22, 18, 21 shots in those 30 point scoring games and he was making them at an unsustainably high clip of about 57% over those 3 games. This is a guy who shot 39% from the field for the year and even when he got hot it was more like 45, 46%. So I don't think we truly know where the percentage is going to end up with Kobe White. I don't think he can get to 20 points per game, and he probably needs to get somewhere in that range to sustain fantasy value without steals, without blocks, and with a field goal percent that's probably going to be a net negative. Still, I totally get it. He's going to be a buzz guy going into next season, and the question is how far that pushes him up the chart. Does he go near the number 100 mark? Does he get pushed into the 75 or 70 mark? Or... Does none of this really register because it only was for two weeks before the season shut down? And if they go straight to the playoffs here, coming back, if that's what we get, then that'll be the end of what we see of Kobe White this season. So there's a chance he gets drafted in like the 130s. There's a chance he gets drafted near 80 or 90 or 100. I have no clue where this dude is getting drafted next year. But where I would consider taking him is in that well, in a competitive league, I would consider taking him near 100 just to see what the hell happens. I mean, that that's where you're looking for guys that have high usage rates when they're on the floor or have a game that might translate into fantasy value or might play a ton of minutes. 
as opposed to the plotters. We've talked about trying to avoid the plotters going into next year, and Lord knows he will not be one of those if he's on the floor for any extended stretch. In a less competitive league, you might actually see him get drafted sooner. Folks that maybe buy into the hype a little bit harder. But if not, I think I'd look at him in that 110-115 range just to see what happens. Shoot the moon, folks. Shoot the moon. We've seen him go nuts, and maybe he just grabs the team next year. Who knows? For that little chance at upside, it's worth rolling the dice. And that's your Chicago Bulls tomorrow. It's a mailbag episode here on Fantasy NBA Today. If we get enough questions, we can even do two of them. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. Then back to postmortems. We still have one more team in the Central Division to go over. That's the Detroit Pistons. That'll be coming up later on this week. And then we'll move to our last division. I know, running out of teams. Better get some news on the NBA soon, huh? This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoopball presentation. I'm Dan Bespris. Enjoy your Tuesday. Talk to you tomorrow. This has been a hoopball presentation.